My name's Andrew, and uh, I get to be a pastor here at Southside. And uh, sorry, you expect me to be here to perform, but I'm, I'm just wrestling right now, so um, bear with me. If we need a, a, a time filler, open your Bible to Philemon. <laughs> Make your way there. Some of you may take a few minutes, so at least uh, we, got a, we, got a, we got a chance here. So it's a one page in the scriptures, and uh, you'll probably pass by it three or four times looking for it. So go ahead and do that. And uh, if you have your phone, pull it out. I'm not going to have slides today uh, because we're just going sh- to be straight in the text this morning. Uh, Finally, is a short enough book. Uh, to do that, uh, because it's, it's, it's just one page, and uh, it's, it's, you know, 20 verses, it's, it's a small little letter, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to spend time there. Before we get there, um, here at Southside, we've been talking a lot about the concept of presence. One of the things that um, you'll know if you've been here for any amount of time is that the, the idea of presence, the, the concept of presence, the, the word presence has been, um, has been a, fa- a foundational um, a consideration for the church and has led them to decisions that, that Southside has made and, and is going to continue to lead and guide the decisions that we make in the, in the future. And we're kind of framing it in a few different ways currently and into the future is um, we really believe that our calling is to be one present with God personally um, by spending time with God. We really believe that we are only changed if we get into spaces where, where we believe that we are in God's presence. Um, you're not changed by learning a new thought on a Sunday morning. You are formed by actually taking that and applying it to your life in such a way that, um, that makes you not only feel and believe, but, but I think is actually happening, uh, and that is to be in the presence of God in some kind of way. God is the one who changes us. God is the one who forms us, and it's through his presence in our life and our experience of his presence in our life that we are truly changed and formed, not just listening to a good idea that sounds good. And that's actually the thing that ends up leading to decisions that you make that, um, that are better. You don't listen to someone and then live differently. You, you have to believe it for yourself before you start living it. And, and we really believe that, that, it's, um, that it's really God that's guiding you and teaching you and leading you. You've got to believe it's from him, otherwise you're probably not going to live it that long. Is this ringing? Can we turn off the monitors? Um, somebody go back there and just flip the main thing down there. The second thing is presence in community. We believe unapologetically that the presence of God in your own life personally, um, it translates to presence in community. There's, there's, there's no example in the Christian life except for the person you know, cast away on an island who can't be around people and then he might find animals to be present with, right? Um, there's no example in the Christian life that where um, your embodied presence with God, personal presence with God, doesn't translate to tr- presence in the, in the body of Christ, in community. Like, you long for it. There's a whole bunch of new people here this morning who, who are looking for a new church, a new community to be a part of, to be present with. And we really believe that that is where um, we are really start to be changed and formed. Presence of God leads to presence of community, and then accountability starts happening, and it's a beautiful thing. And so if you're new here joining us this morning, I want to welcome you and say that we're, we're as uh, about gathering and being present with one another as you are because you showed up, and, and we all did. And so that's a, that's a big piece of the Christian life. And then the third is that a presence of God through us collectively. That's mission, right? And our mission is powerless unless it's the presence of God through us. And the presence of God happens through us when we are formed into Christ's likeness through spending time with God and then spending time together. We are formed, we are changed, and we become more like Christ. And then, and then that's what we bring to our community, to our neighborhood. And that's what has impact. We really believe that. So that's the idea of presence. And we spend a lot of time talking about 
presence of God personally, and, and we talked about Sabbath and prayer for like the last year, it feels like, and that's awesome, and we're going to continue talking about more stuff like that. But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a break from those two conversations about prayer and Sabbath. We're going to start on something else in the fall, but we're going to spend four weeks here just um, looking through this very small but densely packed text in Philemon. And so I hope by the end of this one, you can get quite familiar with it. It's not that daunting to get familiar with because it's a like 30 second read. We'll read it and you'll be like, oh, that was easy. I can do this over and over. So, but don't let Philemon's short um, nature um, fool you. This is an extremely formative text. The reason why it was included in the canon, well, there's all sorts of reasons why, but one of them is because um, if you really, and I hope you see this by the end of today, that this small little letter is like, a very, very clear picture of the gospel. Very clear picture of the gospel. And, is, and, 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 and Paul's theology here that we're going to see laid out through his behavior and through his request and his appeal is like the center of the gospel. And I hope that you understand that and you can see that today. Because for Paul, some people think Paul was about a lot of things and he may have been about a lot of things, but, but I've become convinced in all of my study that Paul was about one thing primarily, and everything else is built on that. And well, yeah, I, I shouldn't just say that. There's lots of things primarily, but the, one of the key things that Paul has influenced the church with is, is, um, is the concept of unity in the body of Christ. Uh, all the other stuff tends to uh, build on top of the oneness in Christ because Paul was convinced that, that the triune Godhead, because of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, therefore he is not just a good person, but he is God incarnate, representative of God here on earth, and then he believed in the spirit of God, so we're Trinitarian, and, and Paul believed that the, the triune relationship was three but one, and they lived in this perfect unity together, and Pastor Ian talked beautifully about that a few weeks ago, about the divine dance of the Trinity, and, and, then the, and then the church is supposed to be the dance partner, and so we are unified, and when we are unified, God is most glorified, and, uh, and so all of, most of Paul's work is built on this vision for unity in the body of Christ that transcends all things. And so that's why we're going to spend some time talking about that, um, because we embody that, and we embody that through presence. The other neat thing about this teaching series is some of you guys know one of our, uh, I don't say, former elders is a weird thing because she's off the elder board, but we, she, we still think of her as an elder, Mary Martin, who's been a long time a member here, and uh, they, they're at a cottage during the summer. They'll be back. You'll get to meet them. But Mary did this... Um, this study in the book of Philemon and, and, and created this kind of four-part outline in her time at Moody, and, and I thought it was brilliant. So one of the neat things about this series is actually that Mary Martin is the resident expert that we're all just learning from um, in the next four weeks, which is um, well, it's pretty special to have people here who are able to do that with us. Before we jump directly into the text, I'm going to give you a little bit of context or contextual information about the, um, about the book. Um, Books written by Apostle Paul. It says Apostle Paul and Timothy, but primarily Paul, and it's written primarily to a friend named Philemon. That's why it's called Philemon. Philemon was a Roman um, Christian who was from a city called Colossae, uh, and then that is the city that the Book of Colossians is written to. And uh, he was a key leader in the church there, uh, which is why he is receiving this particular letter. Philemon was probably somebody who um, Paul led to Christ probably in the town of Ephesus, which is where we get the book of Ephesians, because uh, Paul never made it to the, um, the city of Colossae. So, so he probably was somebody who was a disciple of Paul in Ephesus and then moved to Colossae and, or, or was from there originally and then started a house church there, was a part of a house church gathering there. Uh, Philemon, he would have been a man of wealth, great wealth, 
uh, likely, uh, because he hosted the church, so which means he had a big enough home and a big enough family and people to help host those kinds of gatherings. You can picture what we have here in church. We've got this building that we all come to that nobody really owns, but in the early church, they, they gathered in people's homes, and they worshiped together in people's living rooms, and usually it was the person with the biggest house that got to host, and so um, Philemon was, was one of those uh, people. With being a man of wealth, especially a Roman man of wealth, Philemon would have had servants or slaves who worked for him. Now, this was uh, pretty common in the ancient world, and uh, it's best understood through its cultural context. Slavery through the lens of um, the ancient world is best understood separated from a lens of the modern world. Not to say that any of it is good, but we live in a time and in a place where um, our closest and clearest example of slavery is kind of Western colonialism, American slavery, right? And that's a, that's a conversation that is happening and should continue to happen um, here and now in the West in the 20, um, 2023. Um, but when we're talking about slavery and servants, we're talking about um, a different context for it. It was in the first century Rome. And, uh, and I don't say that to say that it was any less oppressive. In some cases it was, in some cases it was as um, evil and oppressive as our understanding of slavery. But I'll unpack that a little bit so that we understand because the story is actually about, the, the, the letter is actually about um, a servant or a slave of Philemon's named Onesimus. So we'll get there. But slavery in the ancient um, context, in the ancient world, was, was the norm. Like it was, it was just, a, it, was, it was an economic, and they would have believed as a necessity. We don't believe it was a necessity because we don't believe anything immoral is a necessity, but, but for them, pragmatically, it was the norm. It wasn't like the Romans were the only ones enslaving people. They just happened to be the wealthiest and richest people at the time because they were the dominant force. But, but that was, that's through all of human cultures, it has been a norm to take people as your own and, 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 and treat them like their property of yours. And uh, there's, there's, there's different reasons for it. Uh, sometimes it really was like, we took these people from their land because we needed workers and we're stronger than them and they can't say no. And so you just take them from a place and you, and, and you make them workers of yours, right? And that's, that's kind of when we think about slavery, that's what we think about. But a lot of times in the ancient world, slavery was uh, something that somebody would choose to opt into themselves. Now you may think, why would anybody do that? In some cases, there was a debt to be paid and the only way to pay that debt was to actually offer your services for a period of time, offer your whole self for a period of time until your debt was paid off, and so in some situations that was going on. In some situations, slavery was actually the most, was to them the most merciful response uh, to um, kind of conquering a people, right? Your options when you conquer a people, you conquer them, right? So you're not just letting them live on their own. So you conquer them, your option is to just wipe them all out, which doesn't sound that merciful, uh, or to take them on as your own and allow them to live but then work for you, right? And so in some, in some contexts, it was seen as, not that it was this, but it was seen as merciful in, in the eyes of, uh, of, the, of the enslavers. And so um, understand that that's kind of what's going on here in this context. Philemon, he's a wealthy person and he has, he has a slave. And uh, his slave's name is Onesimus, which we're going to learn a lot about. And, uh, and slaves were not um, just people that were um, that were just like oppressed to death. 
Slaves were oftentimes um, just workers that were sent about. That you would live in your home with you. They would kind of be a part of your family, but treated like they weren't. There's a there's a dynamic with slavery in the ancient world where where people would almost um, act like they they were a part of your family because they were part of your everyday rhythm. Like, I don't know if you've seen um, has anybody seen the the show A Succession? Not that, not that we should all be watching that. It's a crave show, but I watch Succession. Anybody else? No, I'm the only one? Oh, I'm the only sinner in the room. Okay, good. Thank goodness. It's actually not that bad of a show, right? Um, but you see these really wealthy guys walking around, these guys billionaires, and, and they walk around. It seems like they always have people with them everywhere they go. And then the idea is that they're always walking around with like this entourage of people who work for them, but, but they're so wealthy and they pay these people to basically live with them and work with them. Like, there's no time where they get to be apart from them. They're just like, they're the lawyer who's there at all times, right? And, and they kind of almost seem like they're a part of the family even though they're not. So, so you can, in some situations, that's kind of the picture. We don't really know Onesimus and, and what his role was and, and what the nature of his enslavement was to Philemon other than that if you owned a slave like Philemon did, then they just, they were at your mercy. Like you did whatever that your master wanted. And, uh, and that's, where the, that's where a lot of the atrocities can come from and, and the oppression can come from. You could just be a worker or they could do whatever that you would want to do with a person and, uh, and, and the law allowed that. The law afforded that. So that gives you a little bit of a picture of um, Slavia, at least in the ancient context. And I think it's important to note this. Um, it's important to note that when we apply our 20th century ethic to a not 20th century time frame, then we can really, we can get confused. And, 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 and you hear sometimes this narrative that, um, that, the, that the scriptures or Christian faith actually supports or endorses, or at least doesn't condemn slavery enough. And, and I think there's, there's fairness to that. Um, what's 100% true is that Christians in the past, people who would say they're Bible-believing Christians, have used Scripture. They have, I would use the language of bastardized Scripture to justify the sin of slavery. I would say that that's happened for sure. But it's not that the problem is actually with Scripture. And you'll see, in properly understood in this context, um, Philemon is not endorsing or supporting slavery in any kind of way. But Paul has a very specific ethic of the kingdom of God that's rooted in his theology that we're going to get at here and you're going to see, which is the whole thrust of this letter. This letter is not about whether or not people should be allowed to have slaves or not. That's not the question. And as a matter of fact, the scripture, I th- I'm very confident would say that no, the trajectory that we're heading on is the fact that we think slavery is horrible and evil is the right one. That is of God and there's nothing in scripture that supports modern slavery. Is that fair to say? So that's where we're at, and it's important that we see Scripture in its proper light. Also, um, what we're going to see here with Paul is we're going to get a taste of Paul's ethic. We're going to taste of his of his worldview. We're going to get to see um, how he treats Onesimus, and we're going to see the basis of that, the philosophical and theological basis of that. Because what Paul does here with Philemon is actually quite contrary to the norm in his time. But it is deeply rooted in his theology. And I think one thing we struggle with in the 21st century, we've we've talked about this a little bit, when we have an ethic, but it's not rooted in an idea, it's not rooted in a philosophy, it's not rooted in a historical 
idea or, or, or a historical time period or, or a piece of writing that um, seems reasonable. Like we just have this idea and we think it comes from nowhere because we, we feel like our, our, our ethics or our virtues or our morals, we think they come from, like they're just from within. And the reality is all ethics, all morals, all virtues are actually um, a product of, of people deciding what's virtuous in a certain time in a certain place. And, uh, and I think what we're going to see here is we're going to see a transition in human history that is starting to happen, that is actually the result of Paul's understanding of the gospel and then his treatment of Onesimus and his appeal to Philemon about his treatment of Onesimus. And this is a turning point in human history in regards to our belief about people in humanity. We'll get there, okay? This morning I'm hoping that you see that this letter itself is a very clear picture that in the kingdom of God and in Jesus' way, the, the currency is love, not power. Whereas the currency is, has been power and even continues to be today. And, and what Paul's going to get is the, is the real currency, the best currency, God's currency in his kingdom is not a currency of power. It's a currency of love. And that's what, we'll, that's what we'll hopefully uncover. So if you have your Bible and you have the text, pull it up. Like I said, it's a short one. So we're going to read most of the letter We'll save the salutations at the end here, but I'm going to read from the top, and then we'll, we'll walk back through it. In verse chapter 1, I'm reading from the New English Translation. From Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend, and co-laborer, uh, co to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that the faith you share with us may deepen your understanding of every blessing that belongs to you in Christ. I have had great joy and encouragement because of your love for the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So although I have quite a lot of confidence in Christ and could command you to do what is proper, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. I, Paul, an old man, and even now a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus, am appealing to you concerning my child, whose spiritual father I have become during my imprisonment. That is, Onesimus, who was formerly useless to you, but is now useful to you and to me. I have sent him, who is my very heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he could serve me in your place during my imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. However, without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your good deed would not be at a compulsion, but from your own willingness. For perhaps it was for this reason that he was separated from you for a little while, so that you would have him back eternally, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dear brother. He's especially so to me, and even more so to you, both humanly speaking and in the Lord. Therefore, if you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Now, if he has defrauded you of anything or owes you anything, charge what he owes to me. I, Paul, have written this letter with my own hand. I will repay it. I could also mention that you owe me your very self. Yes, brother, let me have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, since I was confident that you would obey. I wrote to you because I knew that you would do even more than what I'm asking you to do. At the same time also, prepare a place for me to stay, 
For I hope that through your prayers, I'll be given back to you. So here's what's going on. Onesimus, he was a slave he belonged to Philemon. We talked about that. Onesimus did something that put him in a position of owing Philemon a greater debt. We can see that because Paul addresses, hey, if he owes you anything, then I'll take care of it. So Onesimus possibly stole from Philemon. That was common in the ancient world where, you know, chance you could get away, you steal something, you run for the hills, and maybe they can't find you. And so that may be what's happening. We tend to think that Onesimus is actually running for Phi- from Philemon. He did something that he knows was wrong, but he actually runs to Paul. It doesn't seem like he just came across Paul accidentally. It seems as though he probably sought Paul out because he would have known Paul. If he lived in Philemon's home and Philemon and Paul were close, then he would have known of him and he would have known where to find him. So it seems as though Onesimus goes to Paul and pleads with Paul for his behalf. He could have been sent an errand to Paul by Philemon, but that seems unlikely. And he also could have just been making a detour and run into him. But um, like I said, it seems as though he probably was seeking Paul out for a specific reason. And maybe because he was afraid of the consequences, maybe because somewhere along the way he actually found God and he sought, he needed to seek Paul out because Paul was the spiritual father of the community and he wanted to get his wisdom, his advice, and learn from him. It could have been uh, one of many of those things. So Paul, he not only leads Onesimus to faith in Christ, but he sees Onesimus now as a useful companion or a partner in the kingdom. That's the language that he's using. He says, I appeal to you concerning my child, whose spiritual father I have become, presumably in this time when Onesimus has been away from Philemon. But Paul, what's interesting, you think, okay, he rescued a slave, the slave came to him, he became a Christian, maybe Paul would kind of keep him from Philemon, not send him back. That doesn't seem right. Well, that's not what Paul does. Paul, he doesn't want to break trust with his friend Philemon. And so we see in the story that he doesn't just carelessly disrupt the social structure of the time. He doesn't just burn down the system and call for revolution of the time. Um, His appeal is extremely subversive, and it is rooted in his theology. But it is, his response is still along the path of the culture that they were living in and the place that they inhabited, which is why he actually sends Onesimus back to Philemon, because Paul understood that at least according to Philemon, Onesimus currently belonged to him. And so Paul thought it was the right thing to do to send him back to where he was running from, but he doesn't send him back with nothing. He sends him back as a brother in Christ, and that's what's important to see. And because he sends him back as a brother in Christ, not just as a slave owned by Philemon, but a brother in Christ, he makes an appeal on his behalf. He asks Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, as a partner. A koinonia is the word there. It means like a a friend who works together with you, a kingdom partner, co-laborer in the kingdom is kind of the Christian understanding of koinonia. And that's who Paul sends Onesimus back as. He says he's not what he once was to you. He needs to be seen in this way. Now you'll notice, and, and we're going to unpack this a little bit later in this teaching series, but Paul doesn't, he doesn't demand that Philemon do what Paul's asking. He invites him to. He doesn't require it. He doesn't force it. But Paul seems to allude to the fact that he has a lot of um, confidence in Christ that he could command Philemon to do what he's appealing for him to do. But he's not. He's inviting Philemon to make a decision that is best 
a decision that is good, a decision that is virtuous, a decision that is right. And he's saying, I could tell you and force you to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to invite you to do this. Strongly urge you, but it's an invitation. And so Philemon is invited into living a different ethic. He goes on to say, however, without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your good deed would not be out of compulsion, but from your willingness. He's almost giving Philemon the opportunity to be blessed by doing a good deed out of willingness from his own will. So what's the basis for this appeal? It's important that you understand the basis for this appeal by Paul, because it's a strong appeal to make to a friend. Remember, he's talking about a slave who rightfully belongs in his eyes to Philemon, who wronged him in some kind of way, who probably stole from him or defrauded him. So it's not just, hey, we should all be friends, let's sing Kumbaya together. This is somebody who belonged to me, who was my, um, who, who I have full authority over, who burned me, who robbed me, who turned against me. Vengeance is mine, and in that economic system, well, there's a, there's a consequence to doing that. And if power is the system of the economy, and law is the system of the economy, and, 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 and fairness is a system in the economy, then, then there's a different response than what Paul's inviting him to do. But Paul urges him to take him back as a brother, to not only forgive him, but elevate him to the position of a brother in his home, a family member, a co-heir, a partner in Christ. And the basis for that is first, love. We see this in, in uh, verse four. It says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Verse six, it says, I pray that the faith you share with us may deepen your understanding of every blessing that belongs to you in Christ. In verse seven, it says, I have great joy and encouragement because of your love. And then in verse nine, Paul says, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. I'm not appealing to you on the basis of fairness. I'm not appealing to you on the basis of the economy and currently as it exists. I'm not appealing to you on the basis of the law because the law says you can take Onesimus back and you can do whatever you please with him. But it's not about the law. I don't care what the law says. I'm appealing to you on the basis of love is what Paul is inviting him into. And so in Paul's mind, and this is where things turn, love matters more than justice in accordance with the law. Love matters more than getting what's rightfully his. Love matters more than the consequences, the due consequences for the behavior. Love is the thing that actually trumps it in his mind. In an economy of love, it's not an economy of production. It actually works against production. An economy of production would say, no, I'm going to do the thing that is most economically beneficial. In an economy of love, it's not an economy of fairness because, well, as we know, uh, love often comes up against fairness and equality. Your kids say, it's not fair, Dad, right? It's not about fairness. An economy of love is not an economy of conformity to the standards. It breaks the standards. It's willing to go against the grain. It's willing to go against the institution. An economy of love is not an economy of power. In an economy of power, well, what Paul would be doing is so 
dramatically disrupting the power structure that the whole kingdom is built on a very particular power structure. And if they just let go of that specific economy of power, then the whole kingdom would fall apart because it's built on this thing. And Paul says the kingdom of God is not built on that same system and that same structure and the same economy of power. It's not. And a lot of times in the Christian church, we tend to build the church with this economy of power or an economy of justice or an economy of fairness. And what we miss sometimes is the very economy of love. And like I said, this is Paul's understanding of the gospel. And we're going to get to that in a second. It's rooted in his understanding of what Jesus Christ has done, which we know was not fair. A note this morning is that unity in Christ, seeing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ truly, even to the point of a slave who stole from you, to have unity with that person, it requires an economy of love over an economy of power. And the second basis for this appeal from Paul is reconciliation. We saw love, and sometimes people go, well, why can't we just love, and why can't we just forgive, and why can't we just move on? And that's a good question. I, somebody asked me the question a little while ago, why doesn't God just, like, just say everything's right, and it just all goes back to perfect, right? And, and for Paul, he understood that in order for there to be love, you also need reconciliation, and that's at the heart of the gospel, in order for there to be true love, you also need reconciliation. So Paul, he doesn't just appeal to his friend Philemon, hey, the right thing to do here, it's not me doing it, you have to do it. Forgive him, move on. He says, and I understand that you were wronged, I understand something happened to you, I understand that it wasn't right, I understand that it broke code, and I understand what I'm asking you to do is going against the grain, and here's what I'm willing to do. This is what Paul's willing to do. He says this in verse 18, now if he's defrauded you of anything or owes you anything, charge what he owes to me. I, Paul, have written this letter with my own hand, and I'll repay it. Unity in Christ requires an economy of reconciliation that's based on the model of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Paul, he understands this. His entire framework is built on this foundation, on the foundation of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The boldness to ask Philemon to do this is only because of the theological reality, belief, faith in both the crucifixion and resurrected Christ. It's the underpinning of the whole thing. And that's because Paul understands that the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is the great equalizer. He understands that, that if that happened and if that's true and if Christ is the Messiah, then it is the great equalizer. We see in Galatians, he talks about how there's no male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free man. We're all one in Christ because guess what? Christ paid the price for all of us equally. We're all dead in our sin. That's the heart of the gospel. It's the core of the gospel. And, and because Christ both died and subsequently resurrected and, and proved his divinity through that process, then we know that we're all forgiven no matter what wrongs we've done, no matter what sins we've committed, whatever pain we've caused. This is the Christian filter for all relationships, and it's rooted in a theology. And we think sometimes, I think in the West, because we've grown up with a Judeo-Christian worldview, we think 
that this is the norm, that the norm is to treat everybody as equal. But if you read your history books or pay any attention, it is not the norm. The norm across human history, and even still today, is not unity. The norm is tribal preservation. The norm is survival. The norm is prioritizing your kin over your neighbor's kin. The norm is protecting your community from their community. The norm is disunity amongst people for the purpose of personal preservation and longevity. That's the norm. And most civilizations have been built on that. And some even still operate that way today. But the Christian ethic is the antithesis of that. And when you have the Christian ethic, that there is no slave or free person in God's economy. In an economy of love, when you have an economy of love, then you no longer rely on the pragmatic solution of slavery. It dismantles the whole thing. Because you don't get to treat people like they're anything other than equal to you. And then fairness and the law and due consequences, they all come secondary to the first principle. And the first principle is love and unity and forgiveness over justice and preservation. Paul here, what's beautiful about this letter is that Paul is not only teaching this is true, he's living it as it's true. I said a bunch of stuff that Paul didn't necessarily say, but you see the way that Paul lives here in Philemon. He says that not only am I calling you to proper unity with one another, but I'm going to put myself in the place of the reconciler. I will pay the debt. He says that's the mark of a Christian, is the mark of a person who, who not only is going to be the Philemon who forgives, the Onesimus who humbly repents, but also the Christ figure who pays the debt in between. And Paul puts himself there because of his base, his theological base, of what Jesus did on the cross. See, Jesus used his power to serve. He wielded his power to serve. He wielded his power to die for. He wielded his power to reconcile. That's what Jesus used his power for. It's not the economy of power that we understand and that we see today. Let's say give your life for the sake of the other. And what we see in Jesus is we see the heart of God. In God's economy, God's economy is an economy of love. Because Christ loved and gave himself for us, and therefore I love and give myself to my brother. In the story here, we're supposed to find ourselves in three people. And if you read scriptures at all, this is one of the most fun things to do is, is ask the question, who am I supposed to find myself in? And the answer is, you're supposed to find yourself in every person in the story at different times. That's why the scripture comes to life to you the more you read it. Because one day you find yourself in the story and you think of, you see yourself as Philemon. And you think of yourself as the person who needs to forgive. And then another day you actually find yourself in the position of Onesimus, right? And then on another day you find yourself in the position of Paul. And so, for a second here, just with me, put yourself in Onesimus's shoes. What a freedom it is to know that you were seen as a brother in Christ because of the love of God 
expressed on the cross. If this morning, you're here this morning, and, and, and that's new to you, or maybe it's new to you in the season, maybe you've just been spinning your wheels with a bunch of other types of economy, and maybe you're wrestling with some stuff, and, and maybe you're feeling a lot of shame, maybe you're feeling a lot of weight, maybe you're feeling a lot of guilt, maybe you're feeling like you're insufficient, maybe you're feeling like you, you could not be reconciled to God or to one another. Uh, the news in this story for you is that the God of the universe paid the price so that you could be reconciled, and there's freedom in that. There's a gift in that. In the most real way, the Christian story and narrative is that you are a brother or a sister with the body of Christ and alongside Jesus, a co-heir in the kingdom of heaven. You are not a slave. You are a brother. You are part of the family. There's not a debt to pay anymore. It was paid for you. You don't have to live your whole life owning up or working your way to make up for the things that you've done, it's done for you. That's the, that's the Christian gospel. And I don't know if you need to hear that this morning, but it's what the text is teaching us this morning. You're set free from the ultimate consequence of your sin and your misbehavior. There's nothing holding you back from reconciliation other than believing that it's there for you. That's the truth, at least. And you get to be a free person walking in this world. What a gift that would be to see yourself in an intimacy issue. Your whole life is of a slave, and now you actually believe that you are free. You are free indeed, seriously, actually, practically free, both on earth and in heaven, both amongst an, an embodied freeness and in Christ. That's what he says. But maybe for you this morning, maybe you're putting yourself in the shoes of Philemon. You're wrestling right now because somebody wronged you seems to be like there's a relational conflict everywhere you turn. And I'm always surprised, and I shouldn't be because I do it myself, I'm surprised how much Christians struggle with reconciling with those who have wronged them. Let me ask you this question, and I don't mean to, I'm not asking this question to downplay the atrocities of slavery or compare it to what you're dealing with right now, but what I am asking you is, um, who are you still enslaving in your mind? And, and the reason I'm asking that is because what we often do is we often treat people around us like a version of themselves that's not the person in front of us. We treat them like the person who did that thing to us in the past, or we treat them like the child that we raised in the past that was a bit of a brat. They're an adult now. They're grown up now. They've moved on. They found Christ. They've been redeemed, and we're still treating them like something that they're not anymore. We're treating them like things they did to us 10 years ago that may have annoyed us, and we're, and we're, and we're, we're almost enslaving them in our minds, saying, hey, you're, you're not the person in front of me, you're that person back then. And who are you treating like that? Because you might be in your life treating somebody like their old self, holding a grudge against them, unwilling to compromise in your pursuit of justice. And at least... Paul's words, who we believe is, is giving us words from God here, saying, put down that hammer. We live in an economy of love in the kingdom of God. Do you get it? I get there's consequences to misbehavior, but 
goodness gracious, if we can't figure this out, Paul's words here to the church, you notice he says that Onesimus is now a child of mine. He is a brother in Christ because he is formed in Christ. He has been made new. Over and over again across the New Testament, if we, the church here, can't figure this unity thing out, there's no point to it. Like this is only a thing because what God is primarily about is reconciling us to him and us with one another. That's what he's primarily about. It's the basis of all of it. And so if we don't get it, if we can't figure it out, if we're unwilling to do the hard work of reconciliation with our brothers, with our neighbors, with our brothers, look, I know you can't do that alone. It takes two people to do it. But if we're unwilling to do that work, gosh, I don't know why we're expecting the world around us to see light. There's no light there. So maybe you find yourself in Philemon's story today, and maybe your response needs to be at least asking the question, am I enslaving somebody in my mind right now? Am I holding them to something? Because God's offering me a way out, a freedom in treating them like a brother. Yeah, they're messed up. Yeah, they're probably going to hurt you again. They're probably going to say silly things. They're probably, I get it, we get it. I know it's like, but yeah, but how many times? And then, and then, and then scripture says, over and over, and you're like, that runs out, right? And it doesn't. You're like, crap, I'm stuck in this. What have I committed to? Right? Maybe you're married, and you're like, do I really have to keep forgiving? And it's like, yes, you do. Can I just move away? That's not the solution. It sucks, man, but it's the, it's the kingdom. That's the kingdom economy. There's no other way. There's nothing else for us. So I don't know what you're looking for. I don't know what you want. But it's not, it's not the kingdom of God. But there's freedom in that, guys. There's freedom in treating someone like a brother. And you've experienced that. Have you ever reached a point in, a po- in, a, in, a, in a, just a broken relationship where you, something switched in you and you just started seeing them like a brother or sister in Christ? And like just, it's all of a sudden, it's weird. It's like you're carrying this weight and this angst and this frustration. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's like, ah, it's gone. What happened? Where'd it go? There's freedom in that, and that's what God offers us. That's what Christ died for. So step into that. One thought on this is that faith is the energizing source for our love for one another. If you're wondering where do I get the power to do that, the answer is faith. It's a lame answer, right? It's got to be a pill, right? There's not. It's just faith. It's belief that that is the way. It's belief that that's the only way. It's belief that that is the primary economy of God and that I have to grin and bear the work in order to experience it. It's belief, it's faith that that is true and then doing it and then experiencing it on the other side. And if you've experienced it on the other side, you know what that's like. And again, I'm saying this is between the body of Christ. There are people who don't share this ethic with you. There are people who don't live in your economy and you cannot have the same expectations for them. Your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus or who doesn't claim to know Jesus, you can't have the same expectation because they're living in a different economy. But you are not. You're living in this one. And then there's Paul. There's Paul. He steps out courageously, right? He says, look, this is my appeal to you, friend. 
please reconcile with my other brother, your equals, and treat them this way. You have to make that decision, but here, I'll make it easier for you. Let me be the reconciler. There's a debt to pay. I'll pay it. What we're also invited to, on top of the reconciliation, on top of humbly coming as Onesimus, or humbly coming as Philemon to the reconciliation table, we're also called to be the agent of reconciliation. We embody Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate agent of reconciliation. But Paul's example is what it looks like to actually live that out in the context of community, live that out in real time. And that looks like a million things. But for you, it might be you know something's going on here. And it's not about meddling. Don't meddle. That's annoying. That doesn't get anywhere. It's gross, too. You'll hate it. Trust me. Pastors feel like we get, like, roped in to things, you know? And then you feel like, I don't want to meddle here. And then you get stuck in it, and it's horrible. Don't meddle. But you are also invited into being an agent of transformation, an agent of reconciliation, to be a representative of the economy of God and to pay the price in some ways, right? And there's probably relationships where you can actually be the person who steps in and pays the debt so that that reconciliation can happen. And the body of Christ is invited to that, is called to that. And so going from here, this morning we're talking about the presence of God through the body of Christ, primarily through the unity of the body of Christ, and the unity is achieved through living in an economy of love and an economy of reconciliation. That's how this unity is achieved. And that's where we experience the presence of the real living God. I want to pray for us, and then I want to invite you this week to scan through this text. You saw how we read it real quick. It's real easy. And you'll feel great. Read it once a day, and you'll be like, I read the Bible five times this week. I feel really great. Right? And I did my homework, and it was easy. It's not like reading all of First Kings or something. That's hard. But this was easy. Just read this five times over. And then pray and ask God, hey, what, what do I need to see here? What do you have for me here? I want to live in this economy. I'm called to this economy. What is it that you want me to do this week and step into? What is the appeal that you have for me? We're going to pray and then we're going to worship just for one more moment before we get our kids. Let me pray for us. God, I am... <clears throat> Lord, I... I uh, on behalf of this church and on behalf of this community, like we, we get that there's a standard and, then, and it's very clear and it's obvious and then the follow-up is so hard and, and you're really clear. Even, even Paul states that it's really hard to do the thing you know you ought to do over and over again. So I get that, Lord, and we get that and we're saying to you, Lord, we humbly, we humbly struggle with our flesh. We humbly come before you saying, we don't seem to possess the power to do and to live in this economy. And oftentimes, Lord, we feel helpless. We feel frustrated. We feel annoyed. We feel helpless. We feel like it's not, it's not getting the quick fix that we need or that we hope for. It's creating its angst inside of us. We don't really know what to do about it. Lord, there's so many, there's so many situations that just feel beyond our power and our control, Lord, especially with, fam Lord, especially with family and friends who are far away from you, who don't know you, who don't choose to live this way. Lord, free us from that. We're asking for your freedom here this morning. We're asking both, Lord, that you convict us, and we're also asking, Lord, that you free us from the weight and the burden and the responsibility because you've paid the price. You've invited us into a way of living, and you will bless us for that, but we are also free agents freely choosing 
to do that because of your grace and your mercy. So in all things this morning, Lord, I, I ask you to make clear to us a path. I ask you to convict where you need to convict, but I'm also asking, Lord, this morning for this church that we just feel a sense of freedom walking out of here knowing that even though we struggle with reconciliation, we have been reconciled with, that the God of the universe chose to reconcile with us, that we are so loved by God that he sent his son to die for us so that we can be in a brotherly relationship or a sister relationship with that Messiah, with the Christ, with Jesus. That's an incredible truth and reality that shaped Paul's ministry and it shaped the reconciliation that has come from it, the kingdom of God that has grown over 2,000 years and that will continue to grow in the town of Milton here as it is in heaven. It will grow from that, Lord. That's incredible truth. So thank you for that, Lord. Help us live with that light yoke, easy yoke and lightweight as we seek your word for us this week and your calling for us this week to be agents of reconciliation because of your economy of love. Thank you for this morning, Jesus, and all the things that we've done this morning. It's in your name, our Savior and our Messiah and our Christ. Amen.